1: Bonjour, and welcome back to another episode of the Two Tongues podcast. What are we doing today? A little bit of opinion scholarship. How about a little opinion scholarship for today? Because that's what I'm bringing on the uh, on the solo episodes of the Two Tongues experience. A little bit of opinion scholarship. I just want to coin that phrase, so you guys know. Let's see if we can make that work. What do I mean by opinion scholarship? Well, today we're going to talk about some of my favorite subjects. We're going to talk about uh, religion. We're going to talk about psychedelic experience. We're going to talk about the logos. So a little bit of Greek philosophy on top of it. A whole bunch of my favorite subjects. I am uh, not a licensed academic. I am not a PhD. I just have a lifelong interest in the subject. And, uh, And so... I'm going to do some teaching today. Uh I did some learning, I'm going to do some teaching. And um I'm really going to be talking about strictly my opinion. Um be damned with the narrative, be damned with the um uh the orthodox. <laughs> We're going to talk about orthodoxy today. So I mean it in a different uh, in a different uh uh meaning entirely when I say that be damned with the orthodoxy. I'm not talking about the uh, religious group. I'm talking about those opinions that can't be questioned. I'm talking about um having a different opinion than all of the commentators and the uh, thinkers that came before you. You're allowed to have a different opinion. You're allowed to have your own opinion. And sometimes it's damn interesting. So hopefully today will be that. So what we're going to talk about today, I'm going to call this episode Becoming God. So that's not going to be um, surprising to those people who listen to my solo shows regularly. That's a topic I'm particularly interested in. I'm trying to understand what that means. Um, But specifically, we're going to be taking a different angle on this today. I'm going to be talking today about a gentleman that I was introduced to uh, from the other tongue on the podcast, my buddy Kyle. Uh, The person who we're going to talk about today, his name is David Patrick Harry. David Patrick Harry. um, He is in many, many ways a lot like me. Um, That's kind of why I, after listening to him talk, I was interested in learning more. Uh, He runs a YouTube channel and a a website called Church of the Eternal Logos. And David Patrick Harry has a lot of the same ideas that I bring to you guys every week. And he got those ideas from the same places that I I get them from. So just to give you a little bit of background, I don't know much about David Patrick Harry yet, but I've uh, listened to um, a whole bunch of his videos, specifically on the Logos, and one interview that he did with Buck Johnson, which I cannot recommend enough. We'll, we'll talk about that in, in just a second. Uh, but David Patrick Harry, is uh, he's a little bit younger than me. Um, he's doing kind of a similar thing on, on YouTube and uh, in the podcast world, talking about uh, religion, religious ideas in interesting ways. Uh, talking about psychedelics in a uh, kind of a religious or spiritual context—all very interesting stuff. The difference between David Patrick Harry and I is that while I was studying as a kid to be to become a PhD uh, professor, I wanted to teach religion at the college level. Um, I got derailed on that path and uh, and ended up in a whole different. Um, Occupation. David Patrick Harry, on the other hand, um, got his master's degree in this subject and is finishing his doc- doctorate currently. At least that's that's kind of what I understand after listening to him. He's a PhD student. When he did his master's degree, he focused on psychedelics, early Christianity, shamanism, and hermeticism—all topics we've touched on on the Two Tugs podcast, all topics you've heard me monologue about. And so you can see there's a lot of overlap and his influences and mine. Um, So he may, you know, you might think that, uh, think of it like David walked the path that I might have walked on, um, you know, but life gets in the way. Um, So his influences seem to be uh, Greek philosophy, which we're going to talk a lot about today. The great Jordan B. Peterson, who he mentioned in several interviews uh, with Buck Johnson and with... um, I listened to one with him and uh, Matt, whose last name I was going to slip my mind. Forgive me about that, Matt. Um, so, Jordan Peterson, and also The Sacred Mushroom and the Cross. All of these things came up in the uh, introduction to David Patrick Harry. You guys may remember, in season one, Kyle and I did an episode on the Sacred Mushroom and the Cross, and it is by far our most popular episode. It has probably damn near a third of all of our total downloads, of three years of doing the podcast, or two full years of doing the podcast. That episode has the most listens. Um, you know, It's just been extremely popular. And that episode has never been on YouTube, by the way. It's been that popular, strictly in audio form, strictly in, you know, in the podcast world. Um, All of this, all these influences on David Patrick Harry, Greek philosophy, Jordan Peterson's sort of special blend of psychology and and spirituality, uh, early Christianity and the sacred mushroom story that has to do with psychedelics. All of these influences brought David Patrick Harry to an exploration of the Eastern Orthodox Church. So it brought him into religion. It's not the only example of this. Um, studying religion and, and psychedelics are two things that lead people into uh, a, a, tradition, um, a spiritual tra- tradition or to um, some religious tradition. And this is what happened with David Patrick Harry with a little bit of a twist because what spoke to him so much is what he heard when he was studying Greek philosophy and when he was studying early Christianity about the Logos. But it wasn't just that. It was a number of powerful psychedelic experiences. Um, he specifically talks about doing ayahuasca, uh, but I, it sounds like more than that. Mushrooms, probably, and things like that. Before he, he was working his way up to to having an ayahuasca experience. Um, but it was a combination of the the idea of the Logos and how he understood it from the Greek and early Christian world to actually having a psychedelic experience and coming into into contact with the Logos in a way that he hadn't anticipated and that changed his life. And that shit happened to me. So it's just another parallel in my own interests, in my own story, and that of David Patrick Harry. So he's an impressive fella, um, you know, with a lot of overlap with mine. And I want to talk about it respectfully. I want to I want to bring my audience, let's say, who might be interested in all this stuff, to him. You know, go and listen to this stuff. It's terrific. It, you know, if you like what I have to say, you're probably going to like what he has to say. At a bare minimum, I would encourage you to go to the CounterFlow podcast hosted by a guy named Buck Johnson because that conversation was the one that really, really took it home for me. It's the Really, that's the reason why I'm bringing this to you today. So the CounterFlow podcast with Buck Johnson. Okay, so I'm not really sure how to ease into this conversation. I think I want to start with psychedelics. People have mixed feelings about that. There's a lot of fear that surrounds psychedelics, and I think that's partly warranted, and so I don't want to say anything uh, anything really more about, about that. It's not something to be taken lightly. David Patrick Harry said the same, but for him and for I, it brought us to a deeper understanding of spirituality uh, psychedelics were for me not the beginning and for him not the beginning of the spiritual uh, sort of journey uh, but it was something that put us both over the top and in fact uh, something that uh, we're gonna see in just a minute David Patrick Harry uh, uh, attributes the psychedelic experience to what he calls connecting all the dots so anybody who's who's got interest in the mysteries of the universe maybe you've got um, you know, some obsession with understanding quantum physics because there's mysteries there that are really hard to understand and super meaningful. You know, maybe it's uh, maybe it's psychedelic exploration for you. Um, maybe it's exploration of nature. You know, whatever it is, there are things, mysteries, great mysteries that captivate us, and things that kind of provide some energy for us going on some sort of quest. All of us have our own, you know, quest for understanding, and psychedelics have a way as David Patrick Harry said, of connecting all the dots, of giving you an epiphany type of experience. There's a lot of people who never, who never in their natural lives have an epiphany type of experience. Um, so psychedelics, for many people, is the first time they've had such a thing. Uh, so this is where I want to begin. This was the bridge for David Patrick Harry's um, kind of entrance into Orthodox Christianity. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when I say Orthodox Christianity. But I can tell you what comes to my mind. Old men with white beards and black robes and strange hats. Uh, Hats that I, you know, you see lots of strange hats in religion, but the Orthodox have their particular brand of strange hats. Um, That comes to my mind. Another thing that comes to my mind is icons, religious icons, because I was a fan of Anne Rice growing up. Uh, Armand, the character, the vampire character in uh, in that book played by Antonio Banderas in the, in the, in the movie from the 90s. Uh, he is an ortho, uh, grew up in, in Christian orthodoxy, and I believe he was p- painting uh, icons. So these are the pop culture references that come to my mind. Um, icons, uh, orthodox Christianity has a very particular type of aesthetic. So if you look up um, orthodox icons, you, you just Google it, you'll see what I mean. It's beautiful art, but it's not... Exactly what you would expect from uh, the Renaissance or later. Um, it's better stylistically than what you would expect from the Middle Ages most of the time. Um, you know, it's they're they're very talented artists that are doing that, but it has its unique flavor and and it's important for Orthodox Christianity. Icons are important. Um, they have been, you know, for a long time as a way of communicating uh, not only religious stories but also their meaning and and significance the, to people who aren't literate right you have some stained glass window with the uh you know the um, apostles on it and the symbolism or maybe there's a you know there's a painting of the sacrifice of Isaac or something so you know there's these religious images that gave people the stories that they're only hearing about from the priest for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years when people generally couldn't read and so icons became very Important for um, education and for telling stories, but also as an object of meditation. You know, um, an image, an idea to hold in mind during prayer, during meditation, that kind of thing. Um, so, uh, I'm getting off the off the path here. Let me just jump right in. Section number one, we're going to call psychedelics. All is one. Why do I say all is one? Well, anybody who's had a psychi- psychedelic experience. Um, can probably understand what I mean by that. Anybody who's had a mystical version of that experience will definitely know what I mean by that. Um, having a, a mystical, psychedelic experience comes with this attitude. It comes with this impression that everything is one. There is no distinction between anything, really. And what we see of as distinctions and boundaries between objects and, 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 and between consciousnesses, all that stuff is somehow an illusion, And uh, the psychedelic experience opens that up and shows you some kind of deeper truth of how connected everything is. But more than that, it's not about being connected exactly, although that comes along with it. It's about sharing an identity. There is only one identity. There's only one self. Maybe you even think there's only one substance, that what what everything is and what everything's made of and, and the plane in which things exist. All of this is actually one thing. And the psychonauts will will sometimes call that energy. They'll sometimes call that God. They'll sometimes call it vibrations or um, all kinds of all kinds of words that denote some kind of an important unity, an important oneness. And so, I'll, I'll begin with the first quote from David Patrick Harry on the topic of psychedelics. Uh, and I want to just maybe caution the readers that, or the listeners rather, that. This was a conversation. What we're going to talk about today was not something that was written down in a book. It wasn't something that was edited. It was top of, of David Patrick Harry's mind, um, the way that you would talk to, to a friend, you know, and, and having a really engaging conversation. I, I say that because there are some contradictions that we're going to see as we come through here, and I am very interested in talking about them. But I do not mean to be overly critical of David Patrick Harry here. What I want to point out is that when you're having a conversation, you aren't careful all the time with your words, with the meaning of your words, with being kind of self-consistent. and in your mind, the meanings that you intend on conveying and the words you use, they're not always perfect. And so there might be some there might be some inconsistencies here that, seem to be inconsistencies, and if I had the benefit of talking to David Patrick Harry, we could probably talk through them, and I imagine that's probably true, but I will focus on some of these inconsistencies just because what I want to do really is talk about how much in common David Patrick Harry and I have in terms of our thinking and our conclusions surrounding God and the cosmos and the relationship between them and all of that, and how David Patrick Harry's conclusions have been been different than mine in interesting ways. And it brought him to the church, which hasn't yet happened with me. It Maybe it will in the future, but it hasn't happened with me yet. And so I'm curious to know what the difference is. Is do I, Am I missing something? Is he missing something? Do I have something wrong? Does he have something wrong? Um, that kind of thing. So I'm going to let you be the judge. Maybe we can learn together as we go through this. But without further ado, here's David Patrick Harry. He said, if you want to be spiritual psychedelics are the way to go this is how you move into this non-physical non-local realm of spirit of altered consciousness okay so um, I mean I don't necessarily disagree with that and I think you might you might be tempted to say that David Patrick Harry is telling you psychedelics are the only way to go and that is not at all what he's saying I don't think he would agree with that in the slightest but for him personally it was the path that got him there and so he's it's claiming that it's a path available to us. Not the only path to, to having some connection to a spiritual reality. Not the only path, but one path. He says, if you want to be spiritual, psychedelics are the way to go. This is how you move into this non-physical, non-local realm of spirit. So what does he mean by that? So if you have a psychedelic experience that's powerful enough, um, especially if you have that mystic variety that I like to talk about, you will find yourself—you will find yourself not on this plane, right? It seems to you as though you are not attached to your body anymore. You might say it has an out-of-body sort of effect. Some people will talk about, like for instance, with near-death experiences, even seeing their body as though they're a third, third, third person or third party. Um, I don't think that's particularly typical of psychedelic mystic experience. I think it's more like a flip of a switch. One moment you're here in the waking, sober world. The next minute, all of it has fallen away. All of the structure you expect to see, all of the things you attach to yourself, they 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 go away. So you don't have easy access to memories or... or um, any of those structures that you would rely on, you look out at the world and you don't see what you expect to see. Um, time doesn't doesn't feel or you don't experience it quite the same way. It slows down, it speeds up, that kind of thing. Um, you, and Especially if you look at something like a DMT experience, an ayahuasca experience, you will find yourself suddenly as though by the flip of a switch in a world completely unrelated seemingly. To the world that you've always experienced in your daily life, you see colors, you see shapes, you see motion. Things are morphing and changing all of the time. You seem to be pulled or sucked into this sort of a vortex. You feel like you're floating or flying. Um, you know, there's all sorts of thoughts going through your head, but you can never quite grab a hold of any of them. Nothing slows down, even even long enough for you to make any kind of sense of any of it. And uh, it's just so alien that when you come out of an experience like that, you realize there is more to what I am, and there's more experiences available in this reality than I have ever guessed. And going, growing up and having all sorts of new experiences and, and seeing how complex and dynamic the world is, nothing comes even close to showing you what is really possible. That's that, what he calls, non-physical, non-local realm Some people come to that same conclusion when they study physics and quantum mechanics or when they study biology. When you come to realize you learn about, let's say, cells in your body and then you're made up of these cells. You learn about um, the atoms that make up those cells, you know, the, the, the cells themselves. And you realize that they all have their own worlds, you know. They're on scales where they're completely unrelated to one another, for all intents and purposes, yet they all work together as one thing. And even something like that helps you to realize there's more to even my own body, the most familiar thing to me in the world. There's more to this than I can see with my eye. There's more going on than I can feel, you know? I don't feel cellular activity. I don't know anything about it. So there's more to you and there's more to the world than you could ever guess. And when those sorts of boundaries start to collapse, it is life-changing to realize that what what your religious traditions have called spirit, and you've probably grown to maybe not detest, but turn your nose up at as, as a mature scientific Western modern person. And then you have an experience like that and you go, holy shit, you know, the the shaman with the bone through his nose knows more about the world than I do. It's that kind of life changing. All right, then David Patrick Harry says, God can meet you anywhere. God needed to meet me in these altered states because I was so embedded in them. So you've heard this before, God can meet you anywhere. And, and this is, you know, a very common kind of Christian notion. It's like, it doesn't really matter how bad of a sinner you are. It doesn't matter if you're in the gutter with a heroin needle hanging out of your arm with nothing but regret and, and hanging over your head. Uh, God can meet you there too. It's so, something like that. And he's making this bridge by, by saying, if God can meet you there, he can meet you in psychedelics, and that's what happened to him. And I can say that's that's what happened to me as well. And then he says some things about his psychedelic experiences, of which he had many, uh, LSD and ayahuasca in particular. He talked about doing LSD, and that experience, he said, connected all the dots for him. And what I want to point out is that's, that's an epiphany. That's a eureka moment, what we're talking about here. David Patrick Harry took a mind-altering drug, and the experience he had as a consequence was one that answered questions for him that he'd never been able to answer and connected dots and associated things that were and had previously dissociated. It, it, it had the effect of making him feel as though He solved the mystery of being. Like he had all of the answers. You know, he knew all of the answers. Aha, that's that's it. That's it. That's exactly right. And in the psychedelic experience, you often feel like when you have an epiphany like that, you're receiving some kind of knowledge, some kind of information that you didn't have before. And that's strange because LSD in your brain is you know, it's the experience is happening contained in your biology, right? It's not as though you're experiencing anything outside of your mind you're experiencing a drug in your in your nervous system in your brain and your blood and all that so how is it you can get knowledge that you didn't have from inside your brain is it coming from the chemical that you synthesized in a laboratory is that where the information is kept this mysterious mysterious gnosis in the LSD i don't think so so the experience opens you up to something where you're able to get information that you didn't have before, and sometimes it's it feels like the most important information there is—the answers to all of life's questions, the meaning of life, what God is, you know, what the relationship is is between man and God—all of these questions that you can never answer—you suddenly, you suddenly have sort of a satisfactory, um, you know, answer that comes from this mystical experience. Usually, it doesn't last. And, some, and often it's hard to even remember what those answers were. You try to ask somebody after they come down from a psychedelic experience. You're, it's like a dream. You're going to forget, or it's going to sound ridiculous to you again when you're sober mind. And so that this is the thing that happens, and it happened to David Patrick Harry. And the reason I'm telling you this is because he's not going to be so positive about psychedelics for, for the whole course of, of our discussion today. But in the beginning, pretty positive, right? If you want to be spiritual, psychedelics are the way to go. God can meet you anywhere, even in psychedelics. So here he says LSD connected all the dots for him, gave him this epiphany experience, knowledge that he didn't have before he took the drug. Then later he talks about having an ayahuasca experience and getting messages from the ayahuasca experience. Some people will say when they do ayahuasca that they encounter beings and they get these messages from these beings. Um, I'm skeptical about that. I'm, ex- I'm skeptical about these beings being external to you or rather there's some sort of representation of your unconscious or something like that. Um, so I'm, I, I've got mixed feelings about it. But the idea that you would get messages from them, that I can agree with. I have some experience with DMT. I understand what that, what that is like. And I had in exactly the same way received messages. And so let me tell you what David Patrick Harry's messages were, and then let me tell you what I think it this all means, and I can tell you what my, what the messages I received was. So he says when he when he when he partook in the ayahuasca ceremony, he received a message that said I need to stop consuming. I need to stop consuming and build something. This was the message he got. Now, what he meant by I need to stop consuming, he said he knew what the meaning was. He was supposed to stop consuming drugs. He was supposed to stop consuming other people's ideas. He was supposed to stop seeking and start doing something, building something. At a later time in the uh, in the um, interview, he said that psychedelics stopped working for him. He said, once I got the message that I needed to build something, all the visions stopped. And I have to say, I had exactly that experience. And it's strange because what it seems to mean is that altered states of conscious or mystical experience, you know, in this case, psychedelically induced mystical experience, can offer you information. Now, where that comes from is very difficult to say. And I'll leave it up to you to guess. Does it come from God? Does it come from a cosmic consciousness? Does it come from the unconscious, like Jung would say? Does it come from you? Does it come from some supernatural being that you're encountering in this realm? Hard to say. Take your pick. But for David Patrick Harry, he received a revelation from LSD that connected all the dots. He received a message that he should stop, that his his journey through this this. You know, altered status of consciousness, psychedelic drug journey was over, and that he had something he needed to do. And then the psychedelic stopped having an effect on him. And something something about that sounds like a message to me, also, doesn't it? It's one thing for a message to come through in a psychedelic experience, but isn't it also a message when they stop? when the messages stop, you keep going back, you dive back into that psychedelic world because it's so amazing and because you received a message, you want to know what more can be, can be gained from that experience and you jump back in and you take more and more and more and nothing, nothing. It's like you're being disallowed more until you're ready for the next experience, for the next revelation. And the drug knows that you're not ready for it yet. It's very strange. It's almost intelligent. What is that intelligence? Is it God? Is it the drug? Is it you? What is it? So I have to say, I had this exact exact same experience. At some point, psychedelics no longer worked. And I had a message, the message that I got. I remember it vividly. I was laying in bed. I was looking out the window, looking at the trees, the sky. And when the visions and the vision stopped, I had this feeling. And this is another thing to bring up because this is how the message comes to me. And I imagine similar to David Patrick Harry. It's not a disembodied voice telling me something. It's a feeling of fact. And the fact that I experience while looking out the window is that these crazy visions that you're seeing in the psychedelic experience, when they break down and you come back to your sober reality, all of this magic That you saw in the vision is exactly what you see looking out the window at the trees in the sky and the earth. There isn't a a distinction at all between this, this mystical visionary experience that I can't get enough of and the real world. And I have to find a way of understanding that to be true. Living my life in the real world as though I'm walking around in that magical psychedelic realm they are the same thing and i have to learn to see it that way and that means something and see i don't i'm not ready for the next revelation until i figure that out and then i can i can maybe return to the psychedelics and maybe i can go further if i'm permitted and so all of this stuff is very strange it makes it sound like psychedelics are 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 an intelligence that they're connected to you in some way that you can't understand that they contain information that you don't have but can glean from them, not just facts and and epiphanies, but direction for your life. And it's just very strange. And it's another thing that shows you there's more to your experience and there's more to the world than you ever thought possible. Where is this information coming from? Why don't we know about that? Why don't we know where the information comes from? why haven't we figured out how to reliably have these experiences why are we hiding from it why are we scared of it i'm sure there are good reasons i don't know i don't know what they might be okay and then david david patrick harry goes on he says we're all one is a common euphemism for people that take psychedelics fair enough we're all one and then he says Christianity says, love your neighbor as yourself. A similar concept. Okay, so I'll stop there. So the psychedelic revelation is all is one. Then Jesus comes around and says, love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? It means see your neighbor as one with you. And when you do, you will treat him or her as you're supposed to. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because your neighbor is yourself. Because all is one. And I agree with David Patrick Harry. That is a similar concept. I would agree, or I would maybe disagree with this latter part we're going to get to in a minute. I don't think it's a similar concept. I think it's an identical concept. Now David Patrick Harry says this, a similar concept, but not the same thing. So I take some issue with that, but let's let's hear him out not the same thing, because we're not all the same self. He says Christianity says we're all different selves, but we have to love each other as the same self. Where psychedelics say we're all just one cosmic consciousness. Okay, so he points out the distinction that he notices. The distinction he notices is that We're not all the same self. There's something important to David Patrick Harry and perhaps to Christianity that we don't surrender ourself to become the same thing with humanity, that we don't surrender our differences, our individuality, um, and our distinctions because there's something important about you being unique and an individual, having your own conscience, making your own decisions, um, having the weight of 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 sin let's say that that rests squarely on your shoulders because you're the motherfucker that did wrong so he seems to think that a psychedelic understanding removes that somehow because if all is one a concept like sin is difficult to to talk about because how can it be my sin when i'm one with everybody what is that is that dilute my sin like it's a very strange idea So maybe this is where he's coming at it, and I would love to talk to him about it to make it more clear, but this is the distinction he makes. We can't all be one because it's important to recognize that we're not the same self. Now, I look at the Bible. I look at the Christian part of the Bible in particular, the New Testament, and I see love your neighbor as yourself. And I do what David Patrick Ayer himself does. I look at early Christianity to see kind of what the earliest ideas were. And in the Gnostic tradition from the Gospel of Thomas, we have another phrase that says, pick up a stone and you will find me. Now that's God speaking to Jesus. Pick up a stone and you will find me. Split a piece of wood and I am there. This comes from the Gospel of Thomas. Now I see, pick up a stone and you will find God. And the, and Jesus' words, love your neighbor as yourself, as providing the exact same message. God is all things. So why you should love your neighbor as yourself is because your neighbor is you, your God, and so is your neighbor. Pick up a stone and you will find me. That's saying the same thing. God is everything and everywhere. Now, I think that's more in line with the psychedelic experience. Um, I I don't see any distinction here and I think we could dig into it deeper where David Patrick Carey says we're not all the same self. I would argue that there's a way of looking at that as, as incorrect. There's a way of looking at that that's incorrect. Um, I mean, I could get into it. I don't it maybe derail me a little bit. But even from a Christian perspective, we understand um, in the book of Genesis, for instance, when Adam and Eve are... Adam in, in in particular was made of clay so God creates this form of a man and then he breathes life into it. So something like the the animating force of God has been has been added to this f- clay figure that makes it alive and you might say that the thing in that clay form, Adam that makes it alive is a little piece of God you know the soul right? The immortal soul, and then I would argue that even from a Christian's own perspective, the immortal soul—that God, that God breath, right—that thing that I would also connect to the Logos, which we're going to talk about more today. That's the same thing that—that that is the force of life in every human being. So even if we don't take it beyond beyond that, we have a we have an identity. We have a union of identity. The thing that makes you alive is God. What does that mean? It's very difficult for me to say that the part of me that's God and the part of you that's God are different, are are ourselves different if at the core of that is God, the breath of God that that we hear about from Genesis. I think we could argue that way. And I wonder what David would have to say about that. He goes on. He says, love your neighbor as yourself is the psychedelic revelation that all is one. So here he's admitting these things are, we're saying exactly the same thing. But then he adds a caveat. He says, but we should worship the creator, not creation. And this is something like what he said before when he said we're not all the same self. So we worship creator because that's God. Creation's not. Now I'm not so sure about that. I don't think the psychedel- psychedelic revelation is so sure about that. In fact, one of the things that's so powerful about that is understanding that, for lack of a better word, creator and creation are not different. Remember, all is one in the psychedelic experience. Now he gives a quote from uh, from an author, an ancient author named Cicero, who wrote something called um, De Natura Decorum. Um, and there's a character in that, his name is Chrysippus, and he says this. Now, I'm going to read this to you, but I wanna, I, the reason I'm reading this to you is because this comes from um, the series that David Patrick Harry does on the Logos, the idea of the Logos, which is both a pre-Christian and a Christian concept. But it comes right along the same sort of psychedelic lines. So let me read Chrysippus, say, The universe itself is God. It is the same world-guiding principle operating in mind and reason, together with the nature of all things. So according to Cicero here, the universe itself is God. And this is what um, some of the pre-Socratic Greeks would say, the Stoics in particular, and we're going to talk more about them. The universe itself is God. And there's so- something like a pantheism going on here. You know, people like Spinoza, but also uh, but also people like um, tribal people, you know, who have religious ideas of... Of, of the natural world as God. Sometimes it's all of the cosmos. Sometimes it's, you know, just the earth. Maybe it's, fa- you know, Father Heaven, Mother Earth sort of a thing. Uh, but the universe is understood to be God. And the order of the universe, the, the physical laws and, and, and the abstract things that turn the planets and, you know, expand the cosmos and cause your heart to beat, and all of the order that's in the universe, that that's that's related, right? You can't disconnect that from the universe itself. It's the universe and everything that moves within it, you know, and that's God. And he said that order, he said, you know, within the universe, he said that's the same world guiding principle that operates in mind and reason. So really what he's saying here is that the order you see in your own consciousness you know, logic and reason, and memories, and temporal order, and all of the stuff that, that just comes along with our experiences—that's organized and not chaotic. It's organized for a reason. And you say this, you see the same order in nature. You know, you look around, you can see the mathematical relationships um, in the growth of a nautilus shell. You can see the relationship between you know, all of the, the the pieces of nature, the tides and the moon. You know, the sun and the, uh, and the uh, electromagnetic um, field around the earth. I mean, over and over and over, you see examples of order in nature. And this is what the Stoics point to. And this is going to become this idea of the Logos that finds its way into Christianity. And it also finds its way into both David Patrick Harry and my heart. So I want to talk about this more. It's the same ordering principle that orders our experience and thinking. Also orders the cosmos. And that brings me to another Stoic philosopher and emperor of Rome, by the way, a man named Marcus Aurelius. And he said this, regard the universe as one living being, having one substance and one soul, and observe how all things have reference to one perception and how all things are the cooperating causes of all things that exist. So what does he mean by this? something like what Chrysippus says. Think about the universe as one living being. So that's, that's both what, what Cicero said what Chris, in, in Chrysippus' words. The universe itself is God. And it also has elements of that mystical experience, all is one. Because Marcus Aurelius says, regard the universe as one living being, having one substance. So that's like one essence. Or or you can take that literally and say one substance means that everything is made of the same stuff. And what animates the world, our soul, he says that's one thing, one soul, one substance, one living universe. And David Patrick Harry points out this is the idea of of the anima mundi, the world soul, or this cosmic consciousness. These are all ideas related to this idea that comes from the Stoics. And then he says, observe how all things have reference to one perception. And I think that's really critical, actually. What does that mean? All things have reference to one perception. Well, that means anything that's sentient at all, who has an experience a perception of the external world they're all identical so i look at the sun and i see the same thing you see when you look at the sun i feel the warmth of the sun and i'm experiencing the same thing the flower petals feel when they're when they're absorbing the sunlight we have one perception we share a soul and a sentience that that there's an idea in stoicism that our consciousness our sentience and our life that it, it's something that runs through all things. It's one thing that runs through all things and is responsible for life and activity and motion in the world. And then this is where David Patrick Harry changes his tune a little bit, and I think it's important. He says, Inebriation is something to be very, very careful with. Psychedelics, specifically, are so radical in their altering of one's experience that they can open you up to that spiritual world much more so than other substances. You can see nefarious behavioral patterns emerge that we can say are leaning into a sort of spiritual possession. So now he's giving us a warning here about psychedelics. He's saying you do them and you might start to see nefarious behavioral patterns emerge. You're going to start, what? What are you going to start to do that's nefarious? Well, there's always the idea of addiction that comes in. We are talking about drugs after all. Now, I don't think psychedelics are particularly addictive physically or even chemically. But spiritually and psychologically, that's a very different story. They can be addicting in in the sense that you're chasing an experience. They can also be a distraction. You know, you get obsessed with, with how powerful a psychedelic experience was and you want to chase it and you want to recreate it. And maybe you can't think about anything else for a while and it can become like that. It will distract you from the things you should be doing. So there are risks to psychedelics, even if they, even if they're not particularly medical in nature, There's very little risk unless you have, uh, you know, a history of um, psychological disorder. There's very little risk from a health perspective, not, there's not, not a lot of psychedelics that you can overdose on. Uh, that's not to say there's not such thing as bad trips and and reactions that are unusual. So it's important to be cautious, but more more so because of the addiction, distraction, and obsession that can come along with it. And whether the addiction, distraction, and obsession is attached to psychedelics really doesn't matter, does it? It could be porn. It could be food. It could be lots of things that are addicting or distracting or obsessive. All of them would be bad. David Patrick Harry is just saying, that's a risk with psychedelics as well, and I can't disagree with him. And then he says, what psychedelics do is dissolve cognitive boundaries, the boundaries between you and another person, between you and the tree outside, between you and the dead. It's perceived that you can see the world as it really is. This dissolution of boundaries lead people often to aggrandize themselves as divinity. Once all these boundaries go away, what's left is your experience and the realization of a spiritual reality. If I'm accessing this, it must be that the universe gains its personhood through me. And so, I am the universe made man. This is the general belief in a lot of psychedelic spirituality. It self-aggrandizes who we are, but at the same time, in orthodoxy, we believe we are the epitome of creation. The difference is we have to, through humility, submit to the will of God, and there is an objective boundary here. All right, so I know we, that's a kind of a big paragraph. We covered a lot, but I think this is really good. I don't agree with it all, but I want to tell you kind of what I think. I do think psychedelics dissolve cognitive boundaries. I do think that's associated with this feeling of oneness that we talk about. Um, he says the boundaries dissolve, the boundaries between you and others, between you and the tree outside, between you and the dead. And these are these are things that you might hear somebody say in a psychedelic experience, that all is one, that, that, that there is no distinction between you and I. Um, you might hear somebody say I, that I found myself in the consciousness of a tree and i felt what it was like to be a flower or a tree maybe you maybe you have some communication with some ancestor you know some dead relative something like that these are all relatively possible experiences in a psychedelic mystical experience so it does dissolve these boundaries and that is a part of this feeling of oneness that psychonauts talk about but i think you'll see that what he the angle that he seems to be laying on this is that this is the effect of the drug. Like, this is not real. It's just the effect of the drug. And I think, and I wonder what David Patrick Harry would say about this, but I think that the the boundaries dissolving, giving you this feeling of unity, isn't a fake experience. It isn't an uh, effect of the drug um only I think what it is is revealing a truth, a deep reality that underlying all of the all of the structure that we that we develop and bring along with us um, to help us navigate the world, you know the the categories that we make for, for things, our perceptions in general, um, you know the idea of space and time, and all the stuff that we associate with our, with our waking sober reality, that those things maybe are illusion or falsehood, that maybe maybe the unity underlying these boundaries, when they fall apart, when you experience that unity, maybe it's, maybe it's not something false you're experiencing. Maybe it's something true you're experiencing. Maybe that's the way things really are. And that's certainly the way it feels. It has this noetic quality. People will say that psychedelic experience, it feels realer than real. And I can't disagree with that. And he says as much. He says, it is perceived that you can see the world as it really is. So that's what this unity is. It's it's existence as it really is. And then he says something interesting. Then he says that the dissolution of boundaries lead people to aggrandize themselves as divinity. Now, this is something I'm guilty of. And people who listen to the podcast all the time understand probably what I mean when I say that. And it it may not be your first impression. But I say that I am God. And I know that. And I'm not saying that I'm God all by myself. I think everything is God. God. I think you are God, and I am God. And the psychedelic mystic experience revealed that truth to me. And I've been trying to understand what it means ever since. But personally, there's nothing about that that I would call self-aggrandizing. It doesn't make me feel like I'm special. I am the Almighty. It doesn't make me feel like that, because it's not like that. Exactly. Exactly. I've never had a psychedelic experience and believed that I had some supernatural abilities. I never had a psychedelic experience and believed that I could experience the consciousness of anything else or anybody else, at least in my waking world. But I have had a psychedelic experience and came out of it feeling like I am eternal. That what seems to be the end and what seems to be the beginning is illusion entirely and death and birth are are something very different from what we generally think death is not the end and none of that makes me makes me special certainly not putting me at the top of some spiritual hierarchy where I'm God at the top of the pyramid. It's not like that at all. In fact, it's something so mundane. It's like this paradox, which sometimes you'll see in mystic experience, where the most divine thing is the most mundane thing, the most profane thing, that the thing that we think of as the most divine, this thing that we call God and we pretend is some abstraction that we can't wrap our brains around, that that thing is within you and everywhere you look. It's everything you experience. Something like that. That doesn't make me self-aggrandize. It does make me divinity, but it doesn't make me feel special. It doesn't make me feel powerful. It doesn't make me stand out. It make that's the thing that makes me exactly like you and everybody else and everything else. The fact of being God is exactly what makes you common. That's that's more along the lines of what I believe. And it couldn't be any couldn't be any more different from what David Patrick Harry is saying. And he does say something interesting that I agree with wholeheartedly. He says when all the boundaries go away, what's left is your experience and the realization of a spiritual reality. And then he says, "If I am accessing it, it must be that the universe gains its personhood through me, and so I am the universe made man." Okay, so I believe that. I I entirely believe that. I think that whatever order and power caused the cosmos to be born and formed the way that it is and exist as it does is the same power that made human beings evolve and exist the way that we do. And the force of life and consciousness in the universe is the same thing that's in me and you and every creature that's ever lived and maybe far beyond that. So, the universe was formed and it formed me so that I can be alive and conscious of the universe. makes perfect sense to me that I am the conscious part of the universe, the part, I am the organ that the universe evolved so that it could be conscious of itself. And all of that to me makes perfect sense. It uh, accords with mystical experience in every way. And so I'm perfectly happy saying I am the universe made man. I don't think it's, it's even possible to argue that that's the case. But David Patrick Harry resists this, and I, I think I know why. Because when he says that somebody might come to the conclusion, I am the universe made man, that sounds a whole, like, a whole lot like what John says about Jesus. He says that Jesus is the word made flesh. And there's something that maybe seems a little bit disrespectful about that comparison. The universe made man, the word made flesh. How can I compare myself to Jesus, that kind of thing? And I think that's what he means, because he even says that there is an objective boundary here. By that he means between man and God, between creator and creation. But even he finds himself backpedaling a little bit on this. Because he says, to think that you are God, it it's self-aggrandizes you. And then he says, but at the same time, in Orthodox Christianity, we believe human beings are the epitome of creation. So even he starts to understand his thought about self-aggrandizement as being a bad thing um, or a reflection of some, something that's false, some false conclusion. It actually accords pretty well with his own Orthodox Christian perspective, that human beings are the epitome of creation. Is that self-aggrandizing? And even he sees this conflict. And that's why he says the difference is that we have to submit to the will of God. Now, submitting to the will of God has a parallel in psychedelic experience. And he he doesn't say this, and I think he would probably agree with me, though, that when people do psychedelic drugs and they have bad trips or bad experiences... They will tell you, nine times out of ten, it was because of resistance. So you're having this experience, and then you try to control the experience. You try to slow it down. It gets overwhelming, and you try to make it stop. It tries to push you in one direction, and you resist. And the resistance to the experience will give you a very, very bad experience, because there is no resisting that power. It's, it can be a terrible struggle. And you have to submit to that experience in order to have the experience. And the experience could be tremendous. It could be the experience of becoming God, of recognizing what you've always been. It could be the experience of gaining knowledge or insight or direction about what you should do in your life that happened to David Patrick Harry. And only because he submitted to the experience. So to this, I would say, how is that different than saying that you have to submit to the will of God? Because it seems to me like we're talking about the same thing. And then David Patrick Harry says that his last psychedelic experience was the beginning of his journey to becoming an Orthodox Christian and beginning to see the world through the lens of Logos theology. And I think this is interesting because I told you, One of the messages I received from psychedelic experience was that I had to learn to see the world outside in my sober waking reality as exactly the same as the world I saw in my psychedelic experience. And I don't know what that means. And maybe that's something that's pulling pulling me towards some new religious tradition. Maybe it's pulling me to church. Maybe it's pulling me to some uh to be engaged more in in life and to you know be out of doors and to and to have and to have more experiences, new experiences. I don't know what it means exactly. But I see the same sort of pull there that I feel that David Patrick Harry describes here when he says his psychedelic experiences brought him to Orthodox Christianity and to this idea of logos. So let's talk about. Logos. So Logos is something that appears in the Bible. It's a Greek word. So it appears in, uh, in the Greek, in particular in the Gospel of John, where you guys have heard this before, but uh, it begins by saying, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. And often it's, it Logos is interpreted as Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. So what does all that mean? What is Logos? What is the Word? Um, David Patrick Harris is going to tell us all about it. Uh, what? Let's see. What do I want to tell you about Logos before I dive in? Um, Well, as a concept, it predates Christianity, that's one thing, and it was adopted into Christianity. Kyle, by the way, the other tongue on the podcast, said something really interesting. I can't remember the author that he was reading, but uh, there was an author that was talking about this idea of Paul um, going to the Greek world and preaching the gospel, and maybe not getting the traction in the Greek world that he thought he was going to get and then john who wrote who wrote the gospel of john decided that paul wasn't really speaking the language he wasn't really he wasn't really coming to down to the level of the greeks and using their cultural uh patterns and symbols and language to help them understand what this very very jewish idea really uh means and so and so john uses the word logos Because that's a Greek word With an existing history and meaning And that would finally give the context To the Greek speakers back then Oh, this is what you mean You're talking about the Logos So that brings me to the pre-Socratic philosophers If we want to look at the origins of Logos And what it means We really have to begin with Heraclitus And David Patrick, Patrick Harry does a whole series on the Logos And it starts with Heraclitus All right, so I'll just jump in. So from the perspective of Heraclitus, Logos is seen as the thing that unifies opposites. It's associated with fire, since flame is constantly transforming, but united because the essence of fire is always the same. For the Stoics, all animals and people are emanations of the primordial fire, the Logos. What unites animals and humans is the warmth of the body. So I think this is great. There's a couple of interesting things here. The first one is the first sentence, which really blew my mind because I had never heard this before. But the Greeks saw the logos as that which unifies opposites. Anybody who's ever heard me talk on this podcast, on the, on the solo episodes, will know why that strikes me as so interesting. Because there's this idea that predates Heraclitus by a long shot, that goes all the way back to ancient Sumeria and their religious stories that talk about this symbol of God that we call the Ouroboros. Carl Jung called it a syzygy. Same idea. It's the generative union of opposites. Whatever was there at the beginning of time, the thing that's responsible for the universe and for creation, the thing we would call God, originally was one thing that was a... a, a union of opposites. The Sumerian story talks about those opposites being a goddess and a god, Tiamat and Apsu, the salt water and the fresh water, where they're both water, they're both one thing, and they're unified. But one is masculine, one is feminine. One is salt, one is fresh. And so they have different properties. And when you bring the masculine and the feminine together, you can think of a man and a woman coming together, what what happens? It becomes a creative act. And in the Sumerian story, what was being created was the universe and the gods and everything that exists. And then finally, when the, when the separation happens, when, when Tiamat and Apsu are separated, the, the world is the space created in between. And every, everything that was born between Tiamat and Apsu is there. The cosmos and the natural forces and everything. And so the Logos is seen as that thing that unifies opposites. That thing that was there in the beginning a thing that we might just call God. And then he says it's associated with fire, and you can see the symbolism of the opposites there because he says flame is always transforming and flickering and changing. It's never the same from second to second. But fire, the essence of fire, is always the same. right? It's change and permanence. It's potential and actual. It's two sets of opposites together, and fire represents that. Which is interesting to me. I mean, the Zoroastrian religion of ancient Persia, they keep a fire in their temples burning all the time because fire is seen as the symbol of, of God, you know, in, in a very similar way. And the fact that the fire that burns within us, that thing that Heraclitus calls God, the logos that's the thing that, according to him, is responsible for the warmth of our body. The warmth of the bodies of living creatures comes from the Logos burning within them. Isn't that amazing imagery? Then it goes on. Heraclitus talks about the Logos as distinguishing each in accordance to its nature. And he also says "All all entities come in accordance with the Logos. And so what he means here is that the Logos distinguishes things according to their nature. And it's responsible for all new things coming about. And this is important because Logos starts to have this connection to form and order. Right, It distinguishes each in accordance to its nature. So it's responsible for what makes a difference between you and I, or between me, you know, human beings and, and, and animals, or whatever. Whatever distinguishes them, which makes them particular, which makes them something individually unique, that that's from the Logos. And it also reminds me of, of Adam in the Garden of Eden again, when he's, when he's asked by God to name the animals. You remember that? And he uses the word to do that, the logos, to name the animals. And it's like when Adam names them, it's like that's the final piece of the creation. God creates them, he names them, and that's, that rounds off the creation of each animal. It makes them unique. It, may, it gives them their particularity. And that word that Adam uses to give names to each of the animals that are created is the same word that was breathed into Adam's clay form by God that made him alive, according to the Bible. David Patrick Harry basically goes on to say that this pre-Christian understanding of Logos, it emphasizes order and organization. And he gave a whole bunch of words that are associated with it. Word is one of them. Plan, logic, reason, language, all of these things are associated with the Logos. So it sounds like order, form, and pattern, basically, or an organizing principle. And David Patrick Harry called it The divine order of the universe. So it's going to be the order behind everything. Behind your consciousness, behind the design of your body, behind, you know, the movement of objects and 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 you know stars and the cosmos and all of the order behind everything. And I can't help but think that the Logos is something like what the Taoists mean when they say Tao. It's the divine order of the universe or even what the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead meant when he said process. All right, then David Patrick Harry says, I love sacred geometry and fractals and the spiritual understanding of the patterns in reality. Then he said, where is all that rooted? As a psychonaut, I didn't have a metaphysic to root these things. They are rooted in the logos, Okay, so clearly David Patrick Harry found the Logos as this base, you know, God in the form of this idea of Logos, as the base for his understanding. And he said it began with an appeal of sacred geometry you know, geometry that appears in nature. Like we talked about the uh, the Nautilus shell and, and the, the the fractions in each section of the shell, you know, the Fibonacci sequence and, the, you know, the infinite uh, decimal places in the in the number pi and just all these all these patterns that you see in math and in nature. And then there's really no explanation for them. And they're appealing. They're one of those mysteries. And clearly that drew David Patrick Harry in. It drew me in as well. I have an awesome picture on the wall, which you can't see, which is the... Um, uh, the Mandelbrot set, which is this mathematical image, and I can talk about it forever, so I'm going to, going to avoid that. And he said he wondered where his the appeal was rooted and how he could make sense of this. And he couldn't, he said, while he was just a psychonaut. Having all those psychedelic experiences didn't do anything to help him understand where all of this mystery should be rooted until he realized that it's in the Logos. The order comes from the Logos. That's what it is. And he talks about the Stoic philosophers in ancient Greece and how they saw the Logos in the world. So let me read you this bit. He talks about the Stoics. He says they have a monistic world because God is creation. So to the Stoics, like we saw earlier with Marcus Aurelius and Chrysippus, the Stoics believed that Everything was one. It's a monistic world. That means there is no God outside of the world. The world is God. God and the cosmos are one thing. And he said here, God is not separate from creation, and that's important. Now, I do think that that is a psychedelic conclusion, by the way. I don't exactly understand where David Patrick Harry takes issue with that. But let me push on. So he said, because God is not separate from creation, Therefore, God is not some omniscient, omnipotent, all-knowing entity. It can't be, because it's within creation itself. The universe, God, the Logos, for the Stoic, these are all the same thing. He so said, I think this is a logical fallacy. The Trinitarian conception of deity absolutely dissolves these binaries, these dialectics. All right, so clearly he thinks a Trinitarian uh, image or model of God is better than a monistic model. So rather than God being just one, God is one in three persons. And so that this isn't a particularly interesting topic for me, at least not for the purposes of today. So I don't want to focus on that. Uh, But I do want to focus on what he says in the beginning when he says that uh, God is not separate from creation. And that means that he can't be all-knowing, he can't be all-powerful, uh, he can't be all all existing, like all the things we usually say about God, because God exists within creation. And he, he seems to think that the Stoics believe, and maybe he does, that that limits God somehow. Because God is part of creation, and creation is limited and finite. God is not. He's infinite and eternal. So how? How can God be a part of creation? It doesn't make sense. It, it takes away the godhood from God. And I understand that's one way of looking at it, but I simply do not agree. I would argue something like this. Christians of all kinds imagine God as the perfect being. And I, I, have a hard time, I have a hard time believing that a perfect being isn't something like complete. A perfect being is complete. Something like that. And if you tell me that a God that stands outside of the cosmos and exists transcendently is more complete than a God that stands outside of the cosmos transcendently, but also simultaneously is the cosmos. Which one is more complete to you? A God that doesn't include creation or a God that does? And this is my spin. I think a God that includes creation, a God that is both transcendent and imminent both outside of the cosmos and the cosmos, is more complete and more perfect than one that isn't. So this is something I would really be interested to talk to David Patrick Harry about and get his thoughts, but alas, I cannot. Um, All right, this last little bit when he talks about the Trinity I think is interesting. He says, The Trinitarian concept of deity absolutely dissolves binaries and dialectics. To me, that sounds like the trinitarian idea of god unifies opposites and if it dissolves binaries it's something that unifies opposites we, we he's already talked about this with the logos the logos is god so unifies opposites okay so that that seems to make sense to me but here's here's what i want to ask if the stoics look at god as god the logos and the universe they're all one thing this is what he's told us that's kind of a trinitarian perspective by the way not unlike Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I mean, I want to know, what is the difference, right? If the Stoics believe God is one, it's a monistic thing. The Christians believe that too. And the Stoics say God, Logos, and universe are components of this oneness. Christians say Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I'm like really seeing a lot of overlap here. So my question is, what is the difference? Now, God is supposed to unify opposites. That's what Logos does. So let's ask that question. What opposites are reconciled if we think of a Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? Are there opposites to Father, Son, and Holy Ghost that get reconciled? I mean, most Christians would just say, no, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are three persons in one, they're just one thing. So what is reconciled? What opposites are united here? But what if we take the Stoic approach? we take the Stoic approach as, as God is what? Creator and creation, both. Okay, then what opposites are we reconciling? See, those to me seem like opposites. Creator and creation. God and the cosmos. And that's what gets reconciled. Even Christians say that when they talk about Jesus, the person of Jesus. Even David Patrick Harry is going to say that. And if the Logos is that which unifies opposites, I really don't know what opposites are being united with this idea of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. But the Stoic approach, again, seems to make more sense. What what opposites are being unified in God? If God is creator in creation, well, those do seem like opposites to me. And unifying those opposites does make me the universe-made man, as we said earlier. So every thing that exists, certainly every human being, is the reconciliation of those opposites. And that makes me as an individual human being and you, the logos, <laughs> the logos. That's another word for God, you guys. I am God. That's what, that's what psychedelic intuition tells you. All right, David, David Patrick Harry goes on. He says, in Stoicism, the highest thing is to accord one's morality and behavior to this objective structure called the logos, which is the metaphysical basis of nature itself. And this makes sense to me. It's like if there's order in the cosmos, if there's order in nature, order in the world, and you can figure out what that order is and you can start acting with it, right? You start going with the flow of it very much like the Taoists would say. If you can do that, you're going to have a better time of it, right? If, you're, if your behavior and actions are in accord with nature, you're going to have an easier time. If you're If your behavior and actions are constantly contrary to nature, you're constantly fighting the cosmos, it's impossible. It's a losing battle. So you want to live your life in accordance with the logos, with the law and structure that you find yourself in. That's something like submission as well, something like that psychedelic idea that we talked about, about submitting and going with the experience. Very much like David Patrick Harry's formulation of submitting to the will of God. Then he says, to live in accordance with the Logos is to live in harmony with the divine order of the universe. So that's basically saying the same thing. Then he says, Christ is the incarnation of that. Proper worship is the continual striving to imitate the Logos. This is exactly what we do in the Christian tradition. Then he says, only Christ is the incarnation of God. So that last bit, hopefully, it sounds as out of place to you as it does to me. Almost like it was added on, um, you know, to 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 not give the wrong impression, right? So what he says is, Christ is the incarnation of the logos, and what we're supposed to do is strive to imitate that. We want to live in accordance with the divine order of the universe, and one way of doing that is to look at. Look at the person of Jesus, because he incarnates this order. Then all we have to do is do as he did. You know, what would Jesus do comes to mind. And proper worship, he said, is continuing to strive to be Christ-like, to live and imitate the Logos. And he said, this is exactly what we do as Christians. And I agree with all of that, all of that. And then he says, only Christ is the incarnation of God. Okay. And this is where I diverge. When, when, when he says that we are supposed to live in accordance with the logos, like live in accordance with nature, um, all of that makes sense to me. And then he says that Christ is, in, is the incarnation of that order, and that makes sense to me for the same reasons we talked about earlier when I said I am the universe made man, right? Because the order is that underlies the universe and its creation, also underlies the processes like evolution and so forth that brought me into existence. So I am a manifestation of the same order that manifested the earth and the, st- and the sun and the cosmos. But I, I can't say with any clear conscience that I am the only incarnation of that or that Jesus was the only incarnation of that. I think all things that exist Are an incarnation of the Logos. How could it be any other way? Everything that exists was given rise to and sustained by this divine order of the universe. And that same Logos drives the universe onward. To do what? One of the things it did was evolve me, for Christ's sake. And you, and everyone you've ever known, and everyone that's ever lived. And not just human beings, but everything else also. And all of those things are an embodiment of the Logos. So when he tacks on there, only Christ is the incarnation of God, I just, it seems defensive to me. So I, I this is another thing I would love to talk about with him. All right, and then he starts to give some principles of, of these Stoic philosophers. So I'll just read that to you, and then this will lead us into the last section. Um, he says. That the Stoics believe logos is the power that shapes and creates all things from itself. Logos is the power that shapes and creates all things from itself. So it's self-created, and that's that's how we think of God. By the way, nothing creates God. God is self-created or eternal, and so the logos is the power that shapes and creates things from itself. Because it's the only thing that exists. God is one, and, there, and that's all there is. So what is God going to create from? The only thing that exists. Itself. God creates from itself. and Then the Stoics go on to say that the Logos is imminent in the world. So the thing that creates the world is also in the world. If that makes sense. Then it says incarnation is a way of understanding this. Right? The universe made man, or in Jesus' case, the Logos made flesh, an incarnation. And that's how God exists in the world, through the incarnation. He says it is the soul of the world. Logos is the soul of the world. And then he says the human soul is an offshoot of the divine Logos. So Logos creates the world and exists in the world. And is the soul or the animating force of everything in it. Do you see that picture, the divine order of the universe there? And we're going to circle back to this, but I just wanted to highlight that for you because that brings us to the next section, which is called Becoming God, Theosis and Christhood. So the Orthodox Christians, and again, David Patrick Harry found himself in this on this path to becoming one. They believe in this idea of theosis. So I'm not going to tee this up. I'm going to let him do it. So I'm just going to jump right in. He says, the idea that we're going to be divinized is a huge dimension of orthodoxy that is not found in Western Christianity. It's called theosis. The point of the incarnation is so man can participate in God. Of course, when you take psychedelics, the whole thing is about self-divinization. Okay, so here he's making a connection between this feeling of becoming one with the universe or becoming God itself that you have in a mystical psychedelic experience and this sort of theological concept of theosis that appears in orthodoxy. And it re- literally means to become God. And this is sort of the point of orthodox Christianity. This is the, the apex of the religious experience. You want to you participate in God. So what does that mean? Participate in God. It means to become God in some way. It's not clear what that exactly means. But I think this idea of theosis is is completely in line with mystical experience of coming to understand yourself as God. And he goes on, he says, Christianity has the bringing together in one person of divine nature and human nature. Right? That's Jesus, or the Logos, which unifies opposites, remember? Human nature and divine nature. You can think of those as opposites. And they're unified in the Logos. And so the Christian perspective is, that's the person of Jesus. The psychedelic perspective, and maybe my perspective is, that's all things for all of time. You and I included. were the the bringing together of divine nature and human nature reconciling those opposites, uniting those opposites. David Patrick Harry continues. He says, this is essential for us being able to bridge into that non-local realm. When we read Christ saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Now you can understand he is the metaphysical structure that bridges into that. So to, to David Patrick Harry's mind, Jesus is the one and only instance of a unifying of the divine nature and the human nature. And Jesus' existence uniquely bridges us into um, intimate connection with God. And it it, it, it makes sense in a way because it's like if God becomes man, which is what's supposed to have happened in, in Jesus, right? If God becomes man, that also means that man has become God so you can see the bridge there. The moment God becomes man, right? God equals man. Well, the math works the other way around. Man equals God. So you see that bridge there. And to me, that sounds metaphysical. It sounds philosophical. But I'm just not sure what kind of power that holds. Because I still fail to see a distinction between Jesus as this unique uh, example of the Logos made flesh, and myself or you or anybody you've ever known. All right, David Patrick Harry says, How do you participate in God? We participate directly with the Godhead through its uncreated energies. And this is where psychedelics would say, Yeah, the whole of reality is energy, and energy is all around us. said, Orthodoxy makes the same claim. It says the only thing that has a positive existence in the world are the energies of God. Logic, reason, mercy, compassion, truth, language, the good, etc. And then he says to participate in them you have to do them. Right? You have to you have to express love. You have to speak language, right? You have to use logic and reason. So to participate in God you have to act them out. You have to embody them. You have to imitate them. You have to incarnate them. right? The, energy, the energies of God made flesh. right? That's what you do when you embody them and act them out in the world. You've made them flesh. And where David Patrick Harry and the Orthodox make a distinction between these energies of God and God itself, and I, with all due respect, I think that's a mistake. I don't know how you make a distinction between the energies of God and God itself. And if I am embodying the energies of God, and that's how I'm participating in in God, I still fail to see a difference between embodying God's energies and embodying God itself. If I am an embodiment of God itself, then I am the incarnation, the same as Jesus Christ. And so are you and everyone you've ever known and everyone who's ever lived. I just don't understand where this distinction lies. And I told Kyle in the last episode we did together, it seems to me the only difference between myself and and Jesus as a historical person as depicted in the Bible, apart from him being without sin, let's say, the only difference between Jesus and I is that I have a father and a mother. He has no father. He has this immaculate conception to his credit. And I don't, know what, I don't know what else distinguishes us. All right, then David Patrick Harry says, how do we divinize ourselves? Again, this is just like the word theosis, to become God. How do we divinize ourselves? He says, within psychedelic spirituality, it's through magic, the acquisition of power. It's through knowledge, and you can then become more and more enlightened. This is orthodoxy. Believes in illumination, but you're illuminated by submitting your will to God. It's through humility to God and other people that you become more like God. Okay, so I—I mean, I have really nothing but resistance to this particular paragraph. He says, how do we become God? Well, the, the psychedelic spirituality says it's through magic, through, through the acquisition of power, or through knowledge. And I just simply think that couldn't be further from the truth. I think it would be true of esotericism. It would be true of the occult. But it's not true of psychedelic spirituality. When you have a mystical experience in psychedelics, you might say that you're experiencing some kind of magic Only because you have no other words and because it's supernatural. But you also don't have any control over it. Remember we talked about resistance and bad trips. You cannot control the experience at all. It's one of the most humbling experiences you can have actually. So if there's magic involved, you might use that word, but it's not something you're wielding. And it's not something you can learn to wield. It's beyond you. Now, and then he says the acquisition of power, and that, to me, is, seems related to magic in the way that occultists and esotericists will, will say. It's like um, we can tap into s- sort of supernatural powers um, that are, that are a- available in the world by learning secret knowledge, by learning spells, by learning the names of demons, by, you know, things like that. That, that doesn't exist in psychedelic spirituality. So I, I just don't understand that. And then he says through knowledge. I'm going to become God through knowledge. And I don't think that's true either. I think that there is knowledge in psychedelic experience, and that knowledge is that all is one or that you are God. Um, And those are synonyms as far as I'm concerned. And that's true. But also not knowledge that is responsible for you becoming God, right? It's almost like, I've said this many times, and psychonauts will agree with me, it's like remembering when you have that that feeling that all one with the universe sort of a feeling it's like the most familiar thing you've ever experienced it's not strange to you it's like oh yeah i remember this so it's knowledge but it doesn't that, that the knowledge doesn't give you power and it doesn't make you god it's just evidence it's just br- a brute fact now maybe maybe that does make you more enlightened, and it's something that I would I would use that word that I that I was enlightened by that experience. And then he says the same thing about orthodoxy. They talk about illumination in the same way in orthodoxy. It's, it's enlightenment. It's the same thing, but it occurs through humility to God. And once again, I'm going to say that this submission or humility to God, and this submission or humility. Um, to yourself in that psychedelic experience, to go with it, to not resist it, that we're talking here about very similar, if not identical, ideas. All right, then David Patrick Harry says, the goal of psychedelics is to annihilate the concept of self because the ego is perceived to be an illusion. Therefore, I realize that I am much more than this idea of David Patrick Harry. I am a cosmic self. I am God incarnate. And this is a Luciferian worldview. The Orthodox are participating in a very different divinization process through theosis, where we're trying to engage with these energies by living a moral life. We then become divinized by the grace of God. These are major differences between these paradigms, even though there is so much overlap. Okay, so what David Patrick Harry sees as major differences, I simply do not see at all. So when he says that psychedelics eliminate the self or the ego, you, you've probably heard people talk about ego death experiences. And it is something like that. And there is a feeling of being reborn, by the way, when you have an ego death experience. So that also relates it back to the death and resurrection of Jesus in a very similar way. And even these these ancient groups, like um, well, the, the Freemasons, immediately come to mind. But there, but there are many others: um, Gnostic groups and, uh, and and secret mystery groups, like um, uh, like um, you know the worship of um, uh, Mithra in ancient Rome, um, the worship of the Isis cult from ancient Rome. Um, the, uh, the well, the early Christianity falls right into that same category. Um, but there's lots of religions like that that did rituals that were supposed to imitate um, a death and a rebirth. And many of those groups used psychedelics. So there's something like that going on here with the ego death and being reborn. And it's associated with psychedelic experience. There is no doubt. Then he says... Therefore, I realize that I am more than this idea of David Patrick Harry. And that's what I said at the very opening of this. Yes, you have a psychedelic experience and you realize that you and the world you inhabit are far more than you ever imagined they were. And then he says "Then I am a cosmic self. I am God incarnate. And I do think that is a reasonable thing to say about a psychedelic mystical experience. But when he says this is a Luciferian worldview... I I cannot disagree with him more. I have exactly the opposite view. To come to the realization that you yourself are God um, in union with everything else—that is not a Luciferian view because it's not it's not in co- it's not in conflict to God. Right? Lucifer stands as the adversary and, and tries to replace or to um, or to struggle against God. Well, that's not what you do in psychedelic experience. When you become God, you don't fight against it. You don't, you're don't. you not its adversary. You simply melt into it. And when he says that we become divinized by the grace of God, I think that's as true in psychedelic experience as it is in theosis. I would say something like this. When he says that you have to live a moral life to become divine, and that only by the grace of God does that happen. It's like It reminds me of Martin Luther. It's like um, faith without works is dead. That's what Martin Luther says. You have to act morally in the world or you aren't going to earn heaven or salvation. It's not just about what you believe. It's about what you do. And there's a, there's a divide on this in Christianity, by the way. But this is something like what the orthodox position seems to be. You have to live a moral life to become God, Now, my perspective, and the psychedelic perspective, I think, is that we're born divinized. We're we're always already God. Where the orthodox position seems to be that it requires works, that you have to to earn it. And David Patrick Carey says, Luciferian spirituality is a form of self-worship. Some spiritualities believe that God only loves himself If there's only one God, then God only loves himself. God is a very narcissistic being. And people will say, if that's the case, the way I become God is just to worship myself and manifest my desires. By doing this, I make the world a better place because I'm acting more and more like the Godhead. Then he says, we're not to worship ourselves." Our focus is to serve other people through humility and love. Love is not something that's focused on my own will. It's self-sacrificial. So let me dig dig into this. When he says that Luciferian spirituality is a form of self-worship, what he's saying is if you see yourself to be one with God, then what what, what you're worshiping is yourself and not God. And I think that's one possibility, but only one. Uh, The other possibility is that you're simply worshiping what you've always worshiped and you've come to identify with it. It, It's not self-worship. It's the same worship it's always been. All that's changed is your conceptualization of yourself. The worship hasn't changed. The object of your worship hasn't changed. It's not selfish. It's not self-centered. It's not self-grandizing. And then he says, "If again, if God... If there's only one God, and I think he says this as opposed to a trinity or a trinitarian idea, if there's only one God, then God only loves himself. Well, you can see the logic of that, because if God is all that exists, anything God loves, is the only only thing that exists as the object of that love is himself. So that must make him a very narcissistic being. Well, I think that's very anthropomorphic. I mean, what you're doing there is assuming that god would be narciss- would be a narcissist in this situation which would be true for a human being if i said i only love myself that would make me a narcissist probably if god says i only love myself it does not mean that god is narcissistic in no way if god is all there is then his love is self-love and if love should be self-sacrificial like Uh, David Patrick Harris tells us, then God's self-love is actually self-sacrifice. And that's exactly what the story of Jesus is, by the way. God sacrificing himself to the world. If God is the world also, like the Stoics believe and the psychedelic spirituality would believe, then God's sacrifice is to himself. That brings me to my conclusion. If you listen carefully today, you heard David Patrick Harry posit three related things in regards to God and the Logos. First, you heard that the Logos shapes and creates all things from itself. Next, we heard that the human soul is an offshoot of the divine Logos. And lastly, we heard that we participate in God by embodying and acting out his energies. What do you take that to mean? It seems to me that saying the Logos shapes and creates all things is to make Logos responsible for existence, but also for the particularities of the world, for the shape or form they take on. But it doesn't stop here, it goes on to add from itself. So it's not just that God is responsible for existence but that existence gets its substance and structure directly from God. Existence is literally made of God. Next, we hear the human soul is an offshoot of the divine logos. And this implies two things to me. That the soul and logos are somehow synonyms, and that the soul of man comes from the soul of God. It's strongly reminiscent of the Hindu notion of Atman, which is like your mortal soul, and Brahman, which is God, being one and the same. So it's not just that existence is made of God, but that the force of life within it, our soul, is also God. We are something like Logos soul inhabiting bodies made of Logos matter. But we don't stop here either. Next, we hear that our moral actions in the world are only possible through the energies of God, which are understood to permeate reality. So we're made of God, we're animated by the soul of God, and we act out the energies of God. We are God through and through, the whole kit and divine caboodle. Everything we are and do is Logos. We hear this from the Stoics, the Orthodox, and David Patrick Harry. And yet, in the same breath, we're told, quote, there is an objective boundary between creator and creation. And, quote, that only Christ is the incarnation of God. So what am I to believe? That I am made of Logos in the form determined by Logos? That I am animated with a soul of Logos? And that my moral actions are the actions of Logos? I am to believe all of this and at the same time insist that only Jesus was Logos. With all humility, I fail to see a distinction. And it's this very lack of distinction, I think, which could resolve David Patrick Harry's critique of psychedelic spirituality. When he said, if God only loves himself, he's a very narcissistic being, he was hitting at it. Psychedelic spirituality does reveal that all is one, And this does mean that there is only God as the object of love. But there is more going on here. This too, David Patrick Harry hit on when he said that love is sacrificial. See, in this light, God loving himself is God sacrificing. But if God, excuse me, if all is God, what is God sacrificing? And what is he sacrificing to the answer, God sacrifices of himself to himself. This is the divine order of things, the very logos we've been chasing. God sacrifices its divinity to become materially real. God sacrifices himself in the person of Jesus to his as mankind. All sacrifice is self-sacrifice. Just ask the mother who sacrifices for her infant. Just ask the autumn, which sacrifices itself for the spring. Just ask the past, which sacrifices itself for the future.
0: Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work